Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. What a passage that Caitlin has read for us today. God uh, introduces himself to Moses as the God of fire, right? He is the great I am, which we have to say, what in the world does that mean? Your name is the great I am. So today, I really want to put this in the center of your radar screen because uh, this Wednesday, who knows what this Wednesday is? Are you not? Valentine's Day, but more spiritually? More, Ash Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. Right, it's Lent, it's Lent, not Lent, L-I-N-T, not the stuff in your dryer, Lent, L-E-N-T. It's a time when for hundreds of years, you know, people, church people, followers of Jesus, like, let me turn aside like Moses did. Let me turn aside and let me just break my daily routine in some way to really focus in on God. And here's what I'm going to challenge you with today is that you have a personal encounter with the God of fire like Moses did. The importance of actually meeting the personal God, the God of fire, which is what we're going to study here this morning. So anyway, well, welcome. Those who watch online, all of you in the room, thanks for being here. Thanks for braving uh, all the rain outside. Hope nobody uh, had any problems on your way in with melting situations, anything like that's good. Appreciate you being here. All right, trust issues. Quick recap of where we have been. All right. So in week number one, we're in week three. In week number one, what did we learn? We learned this, that the name of the Lord is a strong tower, is what the Bible says. The name of God is a strong. Ask for anything in my name and it'll be granted to you. What does that mean? Does that mean I need to say God's name just the right way? Because I, I kind of, to be honest with you, growing up in church, I thought that was it. You know, and I thought some people really know how to say God's name better than others. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's been in church all your life. I and mean, they just really, right? When a Jesus, right? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Maybe you watch people on TV. Well, man, they know how to say the name right. So it's happening for them. All right. Saying the name. The name's not a magical name. It's not somebody who just knows how to pronounce it the right way. Okay. The name of God represents the character of God. And so the strength comes from, the strength in God's name, God's name is a strong tower. The strength comes from understanding the character of God. So if you can pronounce the name right, the right way, but you're inconsistent with God's character, there's a massive disconnect. There is no power. 
Make sense? So we covered that in the first week, right? There's no, mag- there's no magic in, in the name of God and pronouncing it the right way. All of it is in the character of God. The name of God represents the character of God. Week two, last week, Elohim. It's the way God introduces himself to us. Genesis chapter one, verse number one, all the way to chapter two, verse number three. God just keeps saying over and over again, I am Elohim. He's exclusively, there's lots of names for God. He exclusively uses that name to say, hello. He introduces himself to the world by saying, I'm Elohim. What does it mean? I am the strong one. I'm the powerful one. I am the God who creates out of nothing. And we said in every creation myth, at least that I've ever read, the gods, the gods are always creating out of something. But the way God introduces himself to us in, in, in the Bible, in the book, is I'm the God ex nihilo. I create out of nothing. Why is that important to us? Because you're probably like me. And there's been times in your life like, I can't see how in the world this is ever going to work. I'm in a situation and I cannot for the life of me see how in the world this is going to work. And here's what you need to know. His name is Elohim. He can create something out of nothing. He can create a way where there is no way, where you can't see it. If you can't see it, that's not a problem to him because he can make it happen even when you can't see it. And I encourage you. I did last week. I'll encourage you this week. Some of us need to go over to the prayer wall. Some of us need to push the button on the online platforms that I need somebody to pray with me who believes in Elohim. Because I'm in a situation that I need God to get me through. I need God to create a way where there is no way. That's Elohim. That was last week. What are we doing this week? Yahweh. God introduces himself to Moses as Yahweh, right? I am Yahweh. I am who I am. This is actually God's favorite name for himself. Used almost almost 7,000 times in the Bible. Last week, Elohim is the powerful name of God. Powerful. He's up there with great power and creates Today, Yahweh is the personal name of God. He's come down. He hears, as was just read by Caitlin. He hears, right? And he sees, and he's concerned, and I've come down because I am a personal God, not just a powerful God. Total different story. Moses meets the God of fire. See, fire, you can feel it. And we hear about, we hear about fire. Yeah, I know you can talk to me about fire, but it's a total different story when I feel the fire when I can feel the warmth. And Moses felt he had a personal encounter with the God of fire because fire in the Bible represents God's presence being felt by people in a personal and a very powerful, powerful way. The, uh, the word in Greek for name is to know. And here we find Moses, who had heard about God, really knows God in this passage. It's interesting. I included the, um, on your outline, the Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. Uh, I won't read it to you, but let me just tell you a little bit of background. So from Genesis chapter 1, as I said, all the way down to chapter 2, it's all Elohim, Elohim. And then in verse number uh, 3 of Genesis chapter 2, we're introduced to Yahweh, the personal God. And what is fascinating, everybody, is when the devil is deceiving, tempting Adam and Eve to get them to break their trust with God, he drops off the personal name of God and just says, Hey, the God, the powerful God, Elohim. When the Bible all along was saying Elohim Yahweh, powerful and personal. And all of a sudden when God was no longer personal, when he was no longer here, they found it much easier to break trust with God. This is kind of fascinating. Trust is broken. All right, let's do the story of Moses if we can real quick. Just a, just a real quick highlight, high level, 30,000 view of Moses. Here's Moses' situation. So um, uh, he, he's Jewish, he's Israelite, and they're enslaved in Egypt right? And so the king of Egypt was very concerned 
about the growth of all the Israelites. Oh my gosh, there, you know, there's too many. Uh, and so they said, kill all the baby boys. And they just start throwing all the, it's terrible. Throwing the baby boys into the Nile River. And so Moses' parents, uh, you know, he's born, and they, oh my gosh, they said, they said they look at the baby and say, oh, this is an incredible baby. Everybody feels that way about their baby. Incredible baby. And they said, we've got to do something to hide this baby. And so they hide the baby for, for a while until they can hide no more, and then they do this. I mean, what would make them think of doing this? But anyway, they do this. They get a little basket, and they put pitch inside of it so it's going to float on the Nile, and they put them in there, and they float them out on the Nile River. And then all things, big coincidence, right? The princess of Egypt just happens to be down there. And she sees the little basket floating, floating, floating on the water, and she sends one, go over there and get that basket. Goes over and get the basket, pull it over. I guess, I don't know, open the bat, whatever. If it was open. But anyway, she looks down, and there's Moses, and he's doing what babies do, right? He's maybe smiling, that kind of melts our hearts or whatever, or maybe he's screaming, and that melts our hearts in a different way. What, but whatever he did, he did what babies do, and her heart was touched in a massive way. She's like, oh, my, this is great. And Moses' sister, who's like in the weeds, reeds or whatever is over there, comes up, do, do you want me to find somebody to nurse this child? And she's like, the princess says, yes. I mean, come on. This is so scripted by God, it's unbelievable in the midst of all this mess. Yes, and I will pay. <laughs> so Moses' mom not only doesn't lose Moses, but she gets paid for nursing Moses, right? And now, now uh, after he gets older, he goes, he lives in the palace, and he's groomed for greatness, please. Right, Egypt at that time is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. He's groomed for greatness. He's got all the great education. He's got all the military backing. You know what I'm saying? He gets all of this stuff. Until he's the age of 40. And he knows who he is. He knows he's Israelite. And he knows he looks around and he sees all the Israelites who are enslaved and he, it bothers him. I mean, he gets, he's a little ticked off about it. But instead of him saying, okay, God, what, what would you like me to do? Or, um, you know, help me, guide me, whatever. And like that. One day he goes out and there's a fight going on, be, you know, between an Egyptian and an Israeli and the Egyptian just mercilessly beating the Israelite. And so Moses says he looks this way and that way and he goes and he kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. Next day he goes out and he sees two Israelites fighting, fighting with each other. And he goes up, you know, like the big hero. I'm the deliverer. I've come, right? He's big time Moses, groomed for greatness. Of course he is. He's a prince of Egypt. He's like, why are you guys fighting each other? Your brothers, get along. And they turn on him, turn to him and on him and say, who made you rule over us? You're going to try to kill us like you did the Egyptian the other day and hit his body in the sand? He's like, oh my gosh, I've been found out. Not only that, not only by implication, he's been ratted out. And who did it? Well, it would seem that his own brothers, the Israelites, who he's, he's come to deliver, has ratted him out. They've he thought he would be accepted as the conquering hero, groomed for greatness in the palace. He thought, of course, of course the story plays out this way. But it didn't play out that way because he was impulsive. Have you ever done anything impulsive and regretted it? Because Moses did something very impulsive and he regretted it. Pharaoh found out, now he's on run for his life. So he's rejected by his people. He's out of the palace. You know, the palace has a lot of perks to it. You know what I'm saying? And now he's in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere, in the, in the Midianite desert, everybody. So here he is. He sits down by a well. You know he's depressed. He's like, what in the world's happening? Where is life going, you know? And seven sisters show up to water their father's flock. And they come up to the well, and some local shepherds come along and run the seven sisters off. 
Well, Moses is a hero, right? So he comes to their rescue. And he's like, get, you know, and he fights off the shepherd. I don't know what he does. But anyway, but, but they water the flock and they go back home. And dad says to the seven, you know, daughters, he said, hey, why are you home so early? I mean, usually I have a problem with the local shepherds or whatever. Oh, no, there was this Egyptian dude. And he was just really awesome. And he wasn't afraid of them. And he ran them off. And he's like, where is he? Where is this guy? I mean, I got, it's eight against one in this household. Where is this guy? So they run out, they find him, bring him in, and the father immediately, almost immediately, m- marries Moses off to his daughter Zipporah, right? Now, now let's catch up with him here in Exodus 3. There's the background story. So he doesn't know where he's going. His life is a mess, groomed for greatness. Now he's got nothing, 40 years in the desert. Now here's, here's the thing. Here's what it says. I hope you didn't miss it at the beginning of the reading. He is tending his father-in-law's flock. You know what that means? He doesn't have a flock of his own. The guy who had everything has nothing. And after 40 years in the desert, he hasn't even been able to get his own flock. He's riding on his father-in-law coattails. And let me tell you, that's not a good thing. Okay? So he's got nothing. He's got nothing in the desert until he meets up with God one day. This is after 40 years. 40 years is 14,600 days. 14,600 days of nothingness in the middle of nowhere. So it was a day like any other day when he goes out tending his uh, father's flock, right? In the daily grind. And what's interesting is you read through the Bible, you find a lot of people like you and like me in the midst of our daily grind. Like, how could God ever meet me? (laughs) I don't like what I do or I'm stressed out what I do. Whatever, whatever. We're in the middle of our daily grind, whatever it might be, right? How could God? But you find as you read through the scriptures that God seems to be constantly meeting people in the midst of their daily grind, like Moses, tending the flock. It was just a day like any other day. It's not like you're going to wake up and meet God, the God of the fire, and you're going to say, oh, this is the day. You're going to wake up and say, today is the day. That's not what Moses said. Elisha, we're told in the Bible, was plowing a field when he encountered God. We're told that Matthew was collecting taxes when he met with Jesus. We're told the disciples were mending their nets when they met with Jesus. Could you meet with God in your cubicle? <laughs> no? Could you meet with God out, of the, out in the streets, whatever you do, dealing with clients, dealing with people, dealing with bosses. Could you meet with God? God meets with us right in the middle of everything. And here's where it gets fascinating. In insignificant little... There was millions of these over the Midianite desert. This little, tiny, insignificant desert shrub. I mean, of all things, God's like, here I am. (laughs) Powerful God, here I am. And it's on fire, and yet it's not consumed. And this is how Moses meets with God. We're told that he turns aside, turns aside. You know what the word means? In actual Hebrew, it means he takes a detour. Like Moses' whole life has been a detour. Everything about this guy is a detour. Right, the way he was born, going out on the Nile in the basket, all of a sudden going to the palace, and now he's in the middle of nowhere, and he's just an absolute mess. Do you feel like your life is on a detour? When you consider your life, you know, I shouldn't be where I am right now. I should be in another place. Did you have certain expectations about your life, about where you would be at this point in your life? Did you have certain expectations where you'd be with your relationships at this point in your life or your career? Do you say, I, I should not be the person I am? Do you ever say to yourself, you know, I shouldn't look this way, I shouldn't feel this way? Something. Everything's about a detour. You know what's amazing is God has a tendency in Scripture to meet with people who are on detours. Maybe it's because they're more open to turning aside, to breaking their routine and putting God in the center of their radar screen when they're on a detour. I don't know. I don't know why. For whatever reason, his life is on a detour, and he's willing 
He's willing to break his routine, right? Um, so he's on this detour. He turns aside and he sees this sight. This insignificant, again, I can't emphasize that anymore, this insignificant, one amongst millions, millions of shrubs all over the place, it's on fire. Now, a lot of shrubs in the desert caught on fire, everybody. What's different with this? It's not consumed. It's on fire, but it's not consumed, and that is a paradox. That is a total paradox. It's breaking, it's busting his reality, what he thought at the moment. It's impossible for this shrub to be on fire and not be consumed. And that has a lot to say to us. How can that happen? And what does that mean? When you have, everybody, when you have a divine encounter with God, when you meet the God of fire, it's going to break, it's, it's going to break your current reality. Like, if you were to meet with the God of fire, if you say, hey, or if I was to say, hey, I met with the God of fire, and you know what? He was exactly what I thought he was going to be. Then I didn't meet the God of fire. Because when you meet the God of fire in Scripture, he busts all your reality of who you think God is. It's like, oh my gosh, you're not anything of what I thought you were. Like, I knew a little bit, but whoa, you just like, bam, out of nowhere. If you meet God and he's exactly what you thought God was going to be, then you have created a God in your own image, in your own likeness, and that is who you met. But when you meet the God of fire, it blows your mind. It's on fire, and yet it's not consumed. That is a reality buster for him, and that is who God is to us. When people encounter the God of fire in the Bible, it represents God's very presence coming down. Like God gets real. He's powerful out there. All of a sudden, he's Yahweh, personal right here. Have you ever met that God of fire? Is it knowledge or is it knowing? Blaise Pascal, who was a famous scientist, uh, and mathematician. He had known about God because when his father fell and broke his hip, he had two devout Christians who were doctors who came and cared for the father. And so they explained to Blake, okay, they gave knowledge. And he's a smart guy. He picked up all that knowledge. But all of a sudden his life enters on a detour when his dad dies and his mom had already previously died. And his two sisters, one sister get married, another sister goes into a convent and they have taken a bunch of money away from him. And he's all alone with a lot less money than what he thought. And all of a sudden he's on a big detour with this knowledge of God, but never meeting the God of fire. And then one night it happened. He didn't tell anybody about it, actually. He never told about it. He thought it was such a special moment. He couldn't talk to anybody. How do we know about it? We know about it because he actually wrote about it in his diary. And I guess he ripped that page out and he sewed it into his robe. And when he died, they discovered it. I want to read you an excerpt of what is written by Blaise Pascal. He starts with one word, fire. Probably thinking about Exodus chapter 3, fire. And he goes on to say, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. He encountered the God of fire. You know, fire itself, everybody, is a paradox, isn't it? Fire kind of doesn't make sense to us in some ways. It's a, it's, it, it's a paradox. It's beautiful and it's dangerous. It's beautiful and it's dangerous. It's romantic. A lot of people love to sit by the fire. We don't need fireplaces in our homes. I'm imagining in your house you have a thermostat that you can go and just like turn it up, right? Do most of you have a thermostat in your home that you can just turn the heat up? Some of you are shaking your heads. Excellent. You have the thermostat and you just turn. You don't need the fireplace, but you want the fireplace because it's beautiful and it's romantic. And it's warm. It's inviting. It's, ah, yes. 
right? It's a paradox. It's beautiful. But you know what? It's dangerous. You know anybody from California? It's dangerous. We met a couple from California a month ago, and they were just telling us these horrific stories. People who were trapped in fires and rescued, and I had heard about some horses, and there was like 50 horses, and they were destroyed in the fire. And they said, oh, no, that's nothing. There was tens of thousands of horses that were destroyed in the fire. Fire is very, very dangerous. Maybe you saw the Super Bowl ad, by the way. I think I want to talk about the Super Bowl next week, but that was one of the greatest Super Bowls ever. Now, not, not because the Eagles won. That was... Stay calm, Tom. Major Eagles fan right here. But what a game. What a game. Maybe you saw one of the ads. It was for first responders. And, and they had a phone call of a lady who was rescued from a fire, and she calls the first responder who took And as she, she's calling, right, it's after the fact. It's after, like, the rescue had already happened. But you could hear the emotion and even still some of the fear that was in her voice because the fire is so dangerous. She's like, you, she says on the call, you just kept coming. It was on the ad. You just kept coming like you wouldn't stop to rescue me from the fire because she's afraid. So fire is a paradox. It's beautiful and it's dangerous. God is beautiful and God is dangerous because God is fire. Do you see God as both beautiful and dangerous? Is God that paradox? Because when Moses meets God, he realizes God is a paradox. He's not just beautiful and he's not just dangerous. He is actually both. And the, the deal is, everybody, we tend to see God one way or the other. We either see God as beautiful or we see God as dangerous. It just seems to me that we either run one way or the other. It's like truth and grace. We either run to truth or we run to grace. But God is full of grace and truth. We see God one way or the other. We either see him beautiful or we see dangerous. Which way do you see God? Have you met the God of fire? When you meet the God of fire, he blows your mind. Because things are on fire, but they're not consumed. We see God as either unapologetically demanding rules, wrath, judgment. For some of us, it's all about God saying, stop that, drop that, change that. Right? We're like, yeah, that's the God I know. <laughs> Did anybody grow up in a situation at church like, yes, that's the hellfire and brimstone God I know. Yes, you have introduced me to the real God. Some of us, that's us. Some of us, we just know God is beautiful, unconditionally accepting. Just be happy. I just want you to be happy. I just want to affirm, affirm you in whatever you do. I just want you. I'm never going to say stop that. You just do you do. You do you. Come on. You do, do your own thing. And we know that God. But that's not God. God's not either one. God is actually both. I referenced this last week. I was down at Disney for this leadership institute. I was learning the excellence. I was learning what Disney does in leadership to run such an awesome company, right? How do they do it? And, you know, they said some things that I didn't realize. You know, Disney is like a magical. People love to go to Disney. It's so warm. It's welcome. They want to do that. They want you just to come in and just feel the magic of Disney. Do you know what I'm saying? No. You don't want to spend the money. I understand. <laughs> it is very expensive. What I did not realize, everybody, is... I, what I did not realize is, is there, th th this is what they told us, the, the instructors who are all Disney people, right? There's the Disney look. There's the Disney way. There's the Disney attitude. There's the Disney scoop. Like, they teach them how every, everybody picks up trash in the park, and there's a specific way to do it. They showed us the way to do it. They said, please, when you're walking around the park, do it, right? But there's the Disney look. If you don't have the right fingernail polish on, you're gone. Right? Go back home, change it, keep making a mistake. If your hair is not cut the right way, it's gone. If your attitude is not the right way. So here's what was interesting to me, right? Because they told us this. 
right? What makes the magic in the magic kingdom is they have values and they have rules. And if you can't stick to the values and you can't stick to the rules, this is what they told us. They will help you find happiness somewhere else. <laughs> Unconditionally accepting. Even the magic kingdom has rules. Which one is God? Is he beautiful or is God dangerous? If God is only unconditionally accepting, he's an enabler. If God is only unconditionally accepting, he's an enabler. If God is only unapologetically demanding, he is an impersonal, powerful force in which we are motivated only by guilt. Have you met the God of fire? Have you met a God who is both beautiful and dangerous all at the same time? This is who Moses met. Now, Moses himself is a paradox. The fire is a paradox, right? God is a paradox. Moses is a paradox. Like, Moses is the bush on fire. I mean, he is it. You think about it. God first calls to Moses, and he says this. He says, Moses, Moses. So he calls his name twice. What does that mean? Well, in, in that... In that culture, to call somebody by their name twice is a, is a term of endearment. So Moses knew immediately that whoever's speaking to me wants to be my friend. Whoever's speaking to me has love in their heart for me. Whoever's speaking to me wants to walk with me as, as a friend. So he, knew, he knows this immediately, okay? But then right after the Moses, Moses, did you catch it? What happened? God says, hey, stop. All of a sudden, get, we get really commanded, stop. Don't come any closer. Take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. In other words... You're in danger. Don't come any And Moses immediately knows he's in danger because we're told that he hides his face because he's afraid he's going to die. He's in the danger zone. Everything about this moment is very, very dangerous for him. Have you met the God of danger? Have you met a holy God like that? Like, oh my gosh. Then what happens next is absolutely fascinating. Moses is afraid. He's in the danger zone. God says, I want you to go back to Pharaoh. Let my people go, right, all this. And Moses says, in the middle of the danger zone. No, I don't think so. Uh, uh, no, mm -mm. I, you know, I'm, if you read it in chapter three and four, it's two chapters of nothing but whining and complaining. It's two chapters of saying, almighty God, who I'm shaking like a leaf in front of, of I'm telling you, no. Can you imagine, how do you get away with that? This doesn't, this is a paradox. Moses is the fragile, insignificant bush that is on fire and yet not consumed in the midst of a holy God. How, how, how does that happen? How do you whine and complain to God, sandals off, face covered, shaking like a leaf? No, I'm not going. Find somebody else. I don't care. I want you to go. I don't care. I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. Shoot, take my brother Aaron. Well, I'll let him go with you. God, God is like making all kinds of concessions with him. Like they're talking it out. It's like, all right, take Aaron. You know, I mean, it's just weird. The whole thing is weird. The Bible says that God is a consuming fire. My question is this, why isn't Moses consumed? Why isn't he consumed? All right. So we're told that it was the angel of the Lord. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Angel of the Lord. Who, what is this? Is this an angel? It's not an angel. Because it says here, that the angel of the Lord says to him, take your sandals off its holy ground. In other words, you're in the presence of God. This is deity. Now, we, this is what we do know about angels. They never allow any human being to be confused about who they are and who God is. 
So in the Bible, if somebody comes up and they see an angel, and apparently they're spectacular, I've never seen one, maybe you have, but they're spectacular, and they're like, oh my gosh, and they go to bow, the angel's like, whoa, 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 the angel's like, stop, no, please don't do that. Get up, don't dare bow in front of me, you only bow to God. This is not holy ground, this is angel ground, but this isn't holy ground, and this angel of the Lord says you are on holy ground. So most theologians believe you find the angel of the Lord a number of places in Hebrew scripture that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the angel, and Jesus Christ is mediating the fire, the danger, the holiness of God who is demanding. He is, the angel Lord is mediating all that between Moses and God, and Moses' frailty, Moses' complaints, Moses' humanness. No human being can stand in God's presence unless there's a mediator. And the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, is doing it, and it transforms Moses' life. He says his name is Yahweh. What does that mean? Uh, and he says, I am who I am. You ever thought about that? What exactly does that mean? I am who I am. I mean, it sounds really cool. When you hear it, it's like, ooh, that's deep. I just wish I could, I wish I could swim in that deep section. <laughs> I'm not really sure what this means. I am who I am. Jesus himself makes lots of I am statements constantly. Matter of fact, one time he said, I am, and a bunch of people rose up and said, we're going to kill you because when you said that, clearly you are claiming to be God, so we're going to kill you. So it's interesting that in Exodus 3, the voice from the bush says, I am, and Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly says, I am. Am. So what does it mean? Real quickly. It means self, the self-existent one. In other words, you and I need lots of things to exist. You and I need lots of things in our life. We need water and we need air and we need a lot of things so that we can exist in this world, okay? The self-existent one, the great I am, is independent from all things. Doesn't need anything. It's above all things. Doesn't need anything to exist. It's a self, they're self-sufficient, eternal, and the consistent one. What God was saying, the great I am, to Moses is saying, I am not the one you want here. This is very important. I'm not the one you want me to be. I am who I am. I'm not the one that you've created in your mind. I am who I am. Moses was familiar with lots of gods. There's a lot of gods. There was the gods in Midian where he's at right now, right? There's Baal and Asherah, and he was very familiar with them. And then back in Egypt, you had all kinds of different gods, and people would create them. If you needed rain, like you know, somebody obviously feels we need rain right now, right? So if you needed rain, you created the rain God and you did certain sacrifices and, but you invented the rain God and you invented the crop God and you invented the fertility God and you invented the sun and the moon God. You invented all of these gods. And what the great I am is saying is, is you didn't create me. I am not who you want me to be. I am who I am. I am above all of that. I am the God of second chances for you. So if we construct a God in our own image, in our own likeness, right? We construct it, right? God makes sense to me. When we meet with that God, then there's nothing to be amazed by. You are exactly what I thought you were going to be. And God says, I am not that. I am the great I am. We have been praying, and we'll do this in a few minutes, the Lord's Prayer together. I've been praying that the first two weeks. Here's the reason why. It says, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed. You know what that means? Holy, set apart, above, above us. This is what all that means. He is above us so he can be for all of us, not just some of us. 
If God is not set apart, if he is not the great I am, if he's just something that I've concocted or created in my own, right, my own image, my own whatever, like, for me, then it's going to be about me. It's going to be about my world, and eventually that's going to collide with your world because it's what I need. But God is not creating something for me. He's not created in my own image, in my own light. I haven't constructed God. He's the great I am. And that's why we pray this prayer, hallowed be thy name. You're above all that. You're not for one of us. You're for all of us. You're not controlled by us. You are who you are. And that is a great thing for all of us. He is the great I am. Now, when anybody in Scripture, seems like to me, meets the God of fire, here's something that happens. First of all, right? It's a paradox. Second of all, it's very personal. And third of all, there's a mission. There's a purpose. So God meets Abraham and Sarah, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, meet, fire, whoa, you're real, now go. That's what God says, now go. He does the disciples, go. When he meets with Isaiah, he says, okay, when they get done meeting, it's like, okay, now go. And here we see the same thing with Moses. When you meet, if you want to know, did I have an emotional experience? Was this just all emotion or did I really have a personal experience with God? Here's one way to find out. Did it break your paradox, right? Did it, did it break all reality for you? And did you feel like when you walked away from that situation that you've been sent on a mission? Because if it was personal and it was paradoxical and now you have purpose, those are three clear signs that you have had a genuine encounter with the fire of God, who God really is. So Moses meets the God of fire. Moses, at one point in his, you know, his life, when we catch up with him here, he had some knowledge of God and he had some trust of God. When you catch up with him later in his life, we're told that Moses' trust in God was like sky high. More than that, we're told that Moses would go and meet with God face to face as two friends would talk. It's amazing. How did he go from here to there? It all started with meeting the God of fire. Now, I only have one fill-in-the-blank for you if you'd like to fill it in. Trust takes time. It takes time. So we're starting the Lent season this Wednesday. And historically, it's been a time that we turn aside like Moses. We break our routine and we say, you know, I'm going to be intentional. And I'm going to give some time to this right in my daily grind, like Moses, tending the sheep, daily grind, daily, daily. And I'm just going to say, God, I want to focus on you. I want you to be in the middle of my radar screen. And here's my encouragement. Here's my challenge to you. Here's what this whole message is about. We need to meet the God of fire. God needs to be personal to us. He can't be Elohim, powerful up there. He's got to be Yahweh, personal, right here with us. Have you met the God of fire? And if you do meet the God of fire, these three things, it's a paradox, it's personal, and there's a purpose to it. But we need, and it takes time. We have to be intentional to do it. It's not just going to happen by itself. If you want something to go well in your life, you have to be intentional about it. And that's what I want to encourage you with. Starting this whole Lent season, God, I want to meet Yahweh. I want to have a personal encounter with you. I want to meet the God of fire. It's not something I just want to know about. I want to meet. There was this guy. Uh, he loved to play golf. Let's call him Fred. Loved to play golf. Played tons of golf. And um, he's out playing one day, and he was by himself, so the clubhouse connected him with another guy. Let's call, let's call him Bob, okay? So Fred and Bob. So Fred's out there, and he's playing. He doesn't know Bob. Bob joins him. And they play a number of holes. They get up to, like, the seventh or eighth hole or whatever. They're on the tee box. And this particular tee box that they're on is elevated way high, right? You know what I'm saying? It's up way high. And so they're looking. All of a sudden, here comes this funeral procession. 
there's a hearse and there's all these cars behind it and it's going. And, and Bob, standing there, he looks over and there's Fred. Fred is down on his knees. Got his hands together. He's down on his knees. So Bob doesn't know what. He doesn't even know Fred. So he just stands there. After the procession goes by, Fred gets up. And Bob's like, whoa. <laughs> wow. I mean, you really show your, your respects. You just, I mean, that's a lot of honor that you just gave. And Fred's like, geez, we were married 35 years. It's the least, man, it's the least I could do. I mean, come on. At one point, there was fire in that relationship, in that marriage of 35 years. What happened? Probably what happens to... Most marriages, we tend to drift. We're not intentional. We don't do the little things anymore. We don't give it the time that it deserves. And so that fire and that passion of knowing about each other and knowing each other begins to go down. And what I am saying here from this story of Moses is that we, it's not just about knowledge. We need something greater. Yahweh, it's God's favorite name that he has, that he communicates to us about himself. We need to meet the God of fire. I want to ask you, this entire Lenten period, would you put that on the center of your radar screen of your life, right in the middle of your day, all throughout your day, as you're dealing with coworkers and you're dealing with traffic, you're dealing with all the daily grind of life, just like so many people in the Bible did, would you just say, God, I want to meet Yahweh? I want to meet the God of fire. I want this to be personal. Because when you do, like so many in the Bible, so many people, Mother Teresa's life was changed by a personal encounter with God. Blaise Pascal, William Wilberforce, the list goes on and on. People's lives who were dramatically changed and they were sent on a mission because they met the personal God. I want that to be on the center of your radar screens all this week in this entire Lenten period. I want to meet the God of fire. Okay. Well, that's it. I would love for us to stand now and pray together this amazing prayer that Jesus Christ gave us, the Lord's Prayer. Can we do that? If you're watching online, could you please join us as well? Let's stand together and let's pray. Ready? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen.